And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. It's, it's March already. It's, it's spring. The, after, after we record this podcast, about three hours after we record this podcast, I'm going to move the clocks forward. It's daylight saving time. Suddenly it will be spring. You're going to move to your summer house. Oh, it's, it's, it's time to move back to the coast and, 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 and get the boat out again. <laughs> the chalet by Lake Geneva. It's time to get, get the servants to dust it off and head over and, yes, begin to contemplate your life as a, as a scholar in, in retirement and enjoy, um, you know, the, the, the mild and gentle sunshine of Western Europe. Well, Western Europe, maybe. We, we are going to spend some time, I, unless something terrible happens. I'm going to ICFA uh, next week. I see a lot of friends there. Uh, we're going to uh, go out to the Gulf Coast of Florida with the Haldemans and spend a few days in a little fishing village called Cedar Key. So it, it, it will be a retirement kind of thing. I'm going to buy green plaid browsers that will come up to my armpits. I'm going to learn how to play <laughs> golf. No, I'm not. <laughs> Do you have waders? Do you need waders? Well, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are going to Florida. I mean, doesn't everybody in Florida need waders now just to walk down the street? <laughs> um, fortunately, that's more true of the East Coast, I gather, than of the West Coast. Okay, fair but enough. <laughs> I was talking, I, it's interesting, that the other thing that's happening next week, which I won't be able to go to, um, and and you won't either, is a memorial service in Oxford for Brian Aldis. And I was... Um, on the phone today for a couple of hours with his uh, American agent, who's Robin Strauss, who's going to represent, I guess, American uh, publishing and, 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 and ICFA and, and that sort of thing. Um, and one of the things that occurred to me was how much he loved Florida. Uh, one of the stories which I got to tell her now is that he was completely enamored when this conference was in Fort Lauderdale, that some local professor probably was driving him around to Mount Lauderdale. People in Florida know what this means. Mount Lauderdale is the highest point in Fort Lauderdale, which is means it's seven feet above sea level. It's a small <laughs> hill. Of town, it's already sunk. Was the, <laughs> that was the funniest thing. It, Fair enough. Well, look, everyone, everyone needs something amusing to do, Gary. And look, I hope the, um, now the memorial is... A, major, a great success. Brian was one of the greats of the field. And it was interesting, we've talked about him before, after he unfortunately passed away, uh, about about his heritage and so forth, and I was learning a lot more, uh, talking to his agent, that he was, he loved America because we seemed to like him as a critic as and a historian, as well as as a novelist. And that may be, that may be a British, it may be a UK thing, but it was clear to me, and it seemed to me, seemed to her that it was clear as well, that one of the things he was most proud of was being a recognized literary scholar and literary figure, a friend of Kingsley Amos, a friend of Doris Lessons, coming from a working class background. He loved living in Oxford and being a literary lion of Oxford, Oxford even though the class system in England dictated he should not have been able to do that. And I think when he, when he came here... Uh, especially after his OBE, 
he was just a distinguished English literary gentleman who liked to drink a lot and, and, and other things, of course. But uh, it, 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 it was an interesting uh, contrast. On the other hand, he was frustrated that his mainstream novels never gained any traction in the United States, even though some of them were... Anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated is, to see what his uh, legacy is like, how he is remembered as time goes on. You know, he wrote a number of classics in the field, and he also wrote or edited a number of classic pieces of nonfiction as well. But you never know. I mean, uh, time is unkind, Gary. Time is unkind. And so it will be very interesting maybe to look back in another 10 years and see what his, how, how his legacy is traveling. Uh, and this is true of – well, I, I think about this every time when we get to things like cleverly worked out segue here, when we get to things about what's winning the awards this year or last year or year before last. <laughs> You're going to call that a clever segue. Oh, come on. That's at least a five out of ten, maybe six. I mean, look, I realize we're segueing to awards you know, because, you know, sort of – Clearly, segues. Part, part two, podcast part two. How's that for a segue? No, no, all I can say is, I mean, obviously, you know, for Special Award Non-Professional, I will be nominating Gary K. Wolf for Segways on the Good Street Podcast. Can you get two of them? Uh, <laughs> I have- <laughs> well, actually, I'd before we go ahead, it. there is one thing we should do, Gary. We're recording on either Saturday the uh, 10th of March or Sunday the 11th of March, depending where you are. And... On the 16th of March, I believe it, nominations for the 2018 Hugo Awards will close. So if you are a member of, I don't know, just about any world world convention that ever happened, or at least last year's, this year's, or next year's, you should, if you've read or seen or listened to or touched or cared about anything at all, consider nominating for the Hugo Awards. And you should, of course, you know, I mean... We've never really done this, but I'm going to be shameless. You should nominate the Cood Street Podcast for Best Fan Cast because, I mean, look, really the main reason is because we would like that, right? It means we could go to the before party for the Hugos and we could see people and maybe get a little bit one of those little drink tickets. The drink tickets are good. So if you could nominate yeah, us for Best Fan Cast, if you enjoy the podcast, that would be swell. One of the things for people who put off doing these nominations late, like I did, is that, first of all, anybody who's nominating should have received... Uh, a, a pin number to yes emails to and all kinds of things yeah uh, but I, I kept thinking I don't I haven't got my whole, whole list I shouldn't start but so I started I nominated novels and things of the and you can always go back in and change once you the main thing is to get some kind of a ballot in that's very true and I mean, if you I, don't, I have don't have yeah I have a partial in myself it's like I have one that has nothing for best dramatic work long short. Most of the fan categories, I like. I have to just go back and think again. I, I don't think I've ever had as hard a time nominating for the Hugos. The fiction stuff sorted itself pretty quickly, but all the rest of it, I'm going like, there's so much television, for example, that my mind just draws a blank. And also, I tend to watch like a series, and so I don't pay any attention to individual episodes of series that I'm supposed to be dreadfully impressed by. And then there's all the movies, you know, do you nominate Wonder Woman? Do you nominate Thor? Do you nominate something else, you know? Um, the, the best science fiction, sorry, my favorite science fiction movie from last year actually came out in late 2016, so it's not eligible. Um, mm. And well, then, This is one of the, yeah. the, the TV series, because I'm not sure which episodes were in 2016, which ones were in 2017, which ones were in 2018. There may be 
I, I know that Stranger Things two was all. See, I didn't even watch year. Stranger Things, right? And then well, you know, it, it, it's, I, I want to nominate for best graphic like, story, but for the first time in a few years, I've read nothing at all in that area, so I can't nominate there because I'm not informed. I mean, obviously, I'm not able to, but that would be pretty dishonest. Um, and yeah, so and also, I'm trying to work out what I'm going to nominate for the Campbell. Uh, I've, I'm not really sure who, who I'm going to nominate for that. I've got a few ideas, some people whose work I've enjoyed. And, um, yeah, I've, I've got like Kathleen Kayembi and a few people like that, Vinami Prasad, a um, couple others. Um, and I'll probably skip at nominating for Best Series because I never liked that award, so I don't have to nominate for it. And I've got a whole bunch of YA nominees for the Not A Hugo YA, Not A Whit Hugo. Hey, by the way, did you hear about all that, that, that drama over the naming of the, of the best YA Hugo? It was online, nice, the drama. I know. Some, some idiot, uh, I'm sorry if I'm going to get in trouble for calling him an idiot. Oh, no, go ahead. But, but some idiot looked at the fact that the Worldcon people had gone through a long and laborious, painful, years-long process where everybody voted and argued and thought about something and everyone had their say and everyone who actually cared could have a say and they came up with this award and they came up with this terrible name for it and it's going ahead and then somebody goes oh well i'm going to put in a world con you know a, a, a business you know m you know move m motion to change the name of the award and you're going look i mean that's technically within the rules sure but it feels a bit kind of crap to be blunt don't you think after everybody's gone through that long process, I, you know, I mean, I realize it's all democracy in action and it's the nature of the Worldcon business meeting and you can do all these things. But there's also, I mean, at least respect the process for five minutes, I suppose. I mean, what I would hope will happen, you know, to, to, to look forward is that assuming this motion gets onto the table and it gets argued before uh, the, the Worldcon business meeting, that the Worldcon business meeting will simply bear in mind that there was an exceptionally long process and tell this guy to sort of get on his bike one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand and in fact you and I have been very helpfully corrected on this by Cheryl Morgan our awards mentor uh, who teaches that the degree of debate and, uh, and behind the scenes uh, consideration that goes into these things is invisible to most people so of course it's going to look to this person like Oh, they just decided to do this on the spur of the moment. Well, let's change it. Um, wow. I'm not sure I believe that, Gary. Whilst I do agree that the process is invisible to most people, generally anybody who gets around to nominating, sorry, putting up a motion at a business meeting probably has some kind of an idea about business meeting protocol and what the Worldcon business meeting does. I reckon, I mean, for, for myself, this young adult award has to be allowed to run for a while. Before, I mean, just like with a series award, I mean, I have nothing particularly in mind. I think I came up with one possible nominee off the top of my head for the series category um you have to let it run right just just give it a while it's fine i mean it, Ooh, I, I didn't nominate, nominate anything for the series, series category. Yeah. I, I, I probably won't i mean yeah continue. for one thing i don't i don't want to be responsible for doing the math as to what is and what isn't a series and how uh, many words had been published this day I, I, I want you to watch my re-segueing gary because I'm going to re-segue oh, okay. your segue. You ready? Watch this. Well, it just occurred to me while we were talking about this, Gary, that one thing that I will nominate for the um, the uh, best series, Hugo, will be his Dark Materials. 
and I'll nominate it because there is a brand new, big, enormously long uh, installment, uh, The Book of Dust, Volume 1, La Belle Sauvage, which also very neatly would be an excellent nominee for the World Fantasy Awards, Gary. Segway. Absolutely. Uh, oh, are they coming up too? I hadn't realized that. Well, if you're we a member, Gary, of any one of six or seven hundred different World Fantasy... No, if you're a member of the Baltimore World Fantasy Con- Convention, I assume if you're a, a, nom- a member of last year's World Fantasy Convention, and I don't know, I'd have to look up the elig- whether, whether next year's counts, then you are eligible right now to nominate for the World Fantasy Awards. And what we thought we would do was we would run through our possible ballots and maybe even publish a list on our blog of possible nominees that we have in mind. That was the idea, right? Just to clarify, since I actually printed out the ballot, awards may, nominations may be made by registered members of the 2016, 2017, or 2018 World Fantasy Conventions. Okay. Where was, where was 2016? Do you remember? Let's see. Was 2016... Let's see. <laughs> 2017 was Columbus. 2016, oh, I don't know. I'm going to say <laughs> Pretoria, McMurdo Sound, someplace where I had I would. Would you go to McMurdo Sound for a World Fantasy Convention, Gary? I would. Totally I would go, I would go to World McMurdo Sound. I can, can I say, would, not to be too, too fine-pointed about it, Gary, much more likely to go to a McMurdo Sound World Fantasy Convention than a Los Angeles Airport World Fantasy Convention. Well, there is a point there. Uh, any I airport. Oh, no, I went to a good one in Washington. So that's it. Okay, yes. The 2016 was Columbus, Ohio, the, the, the highest regency. The 2017, was, if you were in San Antonio, Texas, then yes. Yeah. And then this coming year at the Baltimore Renaissance Harbor Hotel in Baltimore, Maryland, with special guests Karen Warren, Tom Kidd, Michael Walsh, and Scott Edelman, and with special guest Elliot de Bedard, you can nominate. And if you go so to UFC 2018, here. you can even buy a membership. Do I get um, I, for that? I, which I, I only did recently. World Fantasy does tend, I don't know if this is planning on doing, but they do tend to cap the registration. Uh, yep. do they Have not? you booked your room? Have you booked your room? I've not booked a room. Book your room, like after this podcast. Okay, I will do that. Because otherwise they'll so run out. And I've booked my room, book. and I've got my membership. Okay, you're... you're, you're, you're you have to do this because you're in a different time zone. Um, what? Months. No! It's because I can't risk buying a plane flight and then a, a plane ticket and then arrive there and have them go, oh, yeah, you can stay in a tent on the park on the other side of the city because that's all we have left. Those tents are pretty nice, actually. This is the, this is the worst anyway. podcast ever. Come on. Let, let's lift our game. The World okay, Fantasy Awards. Don't you love them? Uh, the, the World Fantasy Awards are interesting. And I will say this because I, I um, we talked yes yesterday last week about your tendency to lean toward science fiction in nominating Hugo Awards. Yes, uh, as, as, I wa- yes. as I was aware anyway, though I didn't make it clear in the podcast. And then as, as I was corrected about because it appeared as though I didn't know this. Of course, science fiction and fantasy have always been available, uh, eligible for the Hugo Awards. But it is my prejudice, because I can do that when I'm nominating, to nominate science fiction for it. So, yeah. But well, not true for, the, for this thing. This you can... The, the world fantasy, it's fantasy, horror, and fantasy, horror-y stuff. Right, exactly. 
So the, the, when I was looking at the, I had more nominees than I have spaces for. You have five spaces on the World Fantasy Ballot to nominate people. You're not allowed to go beyond that. Um, and so I was thinking, okay, some of these things I would like to nominate for World Fantasy are science fiction-y enough, I'll put them on my Hugo Ballot instead. So maybe you have that argument. Look, it's your ballot. You're, you're a free man. My argument is not – I would not exclusively nominate science fiction for the Hugo Awards, but in my mind, the Hugo Awards are distinctly more science fiction-y than the World Fantasy Awards or, for that matter, the World Horror Awards or uh, other awards in the field. So, so I going back to – Yeah, back to the World Fantasy the only- ballot, I just want to start by saying the, the categories where I'm least – fully developed are especially word professional and non-professional. So I'll be working those up more over the coming weeks. I only have one nominee for non-professional at the moment and two for professional. What shape are you in with those, Gary? I have nothing for non-professional. Um, Ooh, bad because that, oh, I know that's the one award I've ever won. And, um, and it's, I, I, I just love being labeled non-professional. I think everybody should aspire to that. Even the professional people. Well, we should but probably I, clarify that even though the World Fantasy Award people don't clarify, it has to do whether you derive your full income from what you're doing or not, I think. I think that's the key distinction between professional and non-professional. It's not a quality assessment. I think, I think, I think it's a distinction of whether you earn your primary income, not whether you earn your entire income. Um, but non-professional includes people who don't really earn any income, I believe. It does indeed, yes. Uh, who, who are just wonderful people who, who are out there and need to be recognized. And I may not be connected enough to the field or know enough about the uh, inside machinations of things like putting conventions together, which is almost always volunteer work. Yeah. Uh, so I'll have to do some research in this. That's true. It's like last year, uh, Nellie Graham, who runs uh, Clarion West, or heads the team that runs Clarion West, was the recipient for Special Award Non-Professional, right. which was very well-deserved, so yeah. But my one nominee at the moment, and I know that I will nominate others and apologize to everybody who you know, deserves to be considered, is the wonderful Scott H. Andrews, who edits and publishes Beneath Ceaseless Skies, one of the very finest fantasy fiction magazines working in the field today. He has been nominated a number of times before, but remains a non-winner. I think he strongly deserves to be nominated and strongly deserves to win, actually. So I am getting behind the Scott H. Andrews for Beneath Cecil Skies World Fantasy Campaign. I'm making that noble right now because I do enjoy the stories I read from that magazine, mm-hmm. even though I've complained before about the name, about the title. Eh, whatever. You grew up in the America. I, I've heard back from Scott about this, and, and he makes a very good point that the sky, the point I believe that he made, or somebody from beneath the seas of the skies made, is that the, since the sky reappears, the blue sky, the sun reappears every day, it's therefore ceaseless. It keeps coming back. The sky is always coming back. Uh, that's that's a pretty good CYA move. In fact, skies are endless. They are not ceaseless. But anyway, they publish great fiction. No argument there. What are your nominees for professional? professional? Okay. Uh, I, would, I am nominating Jonathan Oliver, who was the editor-in-chief for Solaris up until about a week ago for Special Award Professional. He performed wonderfully well uh, you know, acquiring science fiction and fantasy books 
for Solaris, and I think he's greatly in deserve of, you know, in, in you know, worthy of nomination. So he's on my my list. And the other person who I'm going to no- I'm nominating is Irene Gallo, who was just promoted, not two weeks ago or three weeks ago, to the publisher for Tor.com Publishing. So an enormous shout out to her to say congratulations again on being the you know, being you know, promoted to that position from associate publisher, and you know, I think we've seen with the various things that they've been publishing that she's a very, very worthy nominee. I did consider adding and may well add Lee Harris as well to that because he's the senior editor there. But there is a strong team located in Manhattan. Irene lives in London, but works with them. Um, Carl Engelaird, um, Roxy Chen, a whole bunch of other great people. And they all deserve to be, con- to be considered, but I would put up Irene as the, forefront person who do you have gar i had okay here's a a question um because uh i have i have a temptation to nominate two people from the same organization joe monty and nava wolf from saga i like what saga has been doing i think it's been risky i think uh they produce some of the best novels and yet they both are involved in seriously editing some of the best books I've seen in the last year. Now, is it considered unethical to nominate two people from the same organization who are therefore placed in competition with one another? Okay. First of all, I don't think that ethics is the the measure you're looking for. It would be more, is it sort of allowable? It's happened in the past, and it's actually a great idea to nominate Joe and Nava together. They appear to be, I'm not aware of anybody else shaping the editorial direction of Saga, and Saga have been producing some wonderful science fiction fantasy. There's some of their work further up the ballot that I've nominated, and more of their work that I've seen elsewhere that's coming out now and in the future that deserves to be on the ballot. So I think they would be a wonderful addition. I mean, Joe was up last year. I think probably people were mostly focusing on Nava because of her work on her anthology with Dominic Prussien. However, it would be very appropriate to consider them now. I don't have anybody else the, right now. Uh, the other, mm-hmm. I have a name, and it sounds, um, it may look like self-dealing, but I don't care. I'm going to nominate Liza Trombi from Locus. Um, it seems to me this is somebody who's done heroic jobs of keeping the magazine afloat under difficult circumstances over the last decade, I guess it is, at this point. Uh, and it's a magazine that has a history of, Hugo Awards that it can't win anymore. It doesn't belong in any category for any awards. And I, I, I think that's uh, the, the, the work she's been doing is admirable. It's a fascinating choice. I, it always b- bothered me that I could never interest anybody in nominating Charles Brown, who was never nominated for the World Fantasy Award, but was would have been a very worthy recipient. I agree. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that uh, is awkward in the World Fantasy Awards, it's an advantage to the World Fantasy Awards that special award professional or special award non-professional covers a variety of, of things that are divided into various other categories in the Hugos. The Hugos have fan cast, fan writer, fan artist, and that sort of thing. It seems to me this is a much more broad-ranging field, and people who edit non-fiction magazines and people who edit uh, things that are – people who are not necessarily visible to, uh, to most readers – have a chance of getting nominated. My sense from having been on uh, the committee, and you've been on the committee as well, 
is that these awards, special award, professional and non-professional, usually come down to the decision of the committee rather than oh, yeah. popular vote. Yes, and we probably did, we didn't say this that the final ballot that you see come out later in the year will be a you know, two popular choices you know that are voted by everybody, and then a further three or four added by the judges. Let's move up to best artist. Now I've got a full ballot, Gary. I might. How about I run through my five selections? You tell me yours, and then we'll talk about them. Because that way we can get through at a reasonable pace. Otherwise, we're going to be here until February of next year. They'll be presenting the awards. We'll still be talking about our nominees. My nominees for Best Artist for the World Fantasy Awards for 2018 are Ravina Kai, Kathleen Jennings, Gregory Manches, Victor Nye, and Omar Ryan. I'm, I'm impressed because you are more aware of this. I only had one, and it was one who's on your list already, Gregory Manches. Um, partly because he had a beautiful book out last year that doesn't seem to fit into any category, and because he's done some wonderful covers for uh, Tor.com. I know he did the cover for Ellen Clegis's Passing Strange, which we'll get to later. So that's the only name I have so far, but I will do a little bit more research on this as well. Yeah. Well, the reason that I chose the, these various people is that Ravina Kai did some wonderful artwork for a Margot Lanigan book called Tintinabulation or Tintinabula. Tintinabula. Kathleen Jennings did some great work for Small Beer on a Kids Johnson book and elsewhere. Greg Manchester did have that fabulous book you're talking about, Above the Timberline, which is wonderful. He did great work on that. Victor Nye has done great work for Tor.com. She did some great work for the Folio Society. Wonderful artist. And then Omar Rayan, in addition to doing two illustrated Terry Pratchett books for the Folio Society that look wonderful, also did his own book, uh, Goblin Market, which he kickstarted and which is a stunning, beautiful book. And if there was a, you know, a related work, it would be on my on my list for that. Uh, I will. Uh, Catherine Jennings is already on my list now because I like, I love those uh, small bear covers. I agree with that. And I mean, I expect that next year probably we'll be talking about Charles Vest being up because of the artwork that he did has done for Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea because they're doing a big, enormous illustrated edition of Earthsea. Right. And I've seen some of those, and they're absolutely lovely. So that brings us to collection. This was the problem for me. There were a lot of good collections this year. A lot of collections. Could have come up with eight books, not f- not f- you know, five. But I cut them down to five by ruthlessly culling out all of those science fiction people, which you know culled out one of my favorite collections. Christopher Rowe's book is mostly science fiction, so I, that, that culled that out. But why don't you start? What were your nominees for Best Collection, Gary? I'll give you... Um, okay, I, I, I did have Christopher Rowe on my list. Um, because it's, yeah, it is Gary. mostly science fiction. So, but I had, more, I had more than five. I have Ellen Clages' Wicked Wonders, which is her second collection, uh, and contains some of her best stories. Her, well, the, the best story in the collection is not actually fantasy, but one of the things that Ellen helped demonstrate with Andy Duncan a couple of years ago is that something's close enough to fantasy or feels enough like fantasy. I'm thinking, obviously, of Apollo's Spring. But nevertheless, there are plenty of fantasy stories in Wicked Wonders. Another list, I, I'm going to give you three more titles, uh, two of which are probably fairly, well, five. Okay, wait a minute. There are lots of titles <laughs> um, there's Sophia Samatar's collection I, I, I thought I had it down to five I didn't there's Sophia Samatar's collection Tender 
um, which is, again, a couple of the major stories ended are science fiction, but I don't think it feels like a science fiction collection. Uh, Jane Yolen's Emerald Circus uh, is on my list. And the one which is on my list that is not likely to be on a lot of other people's lists, even though I think it was a very important book, is M. John Harrison's You Should Come With Me, which is not really mostly science fiction. I'm not sure that all of it is fantasy, but it's certainly strange, interesting, experimental fiction organized into a collection as as an assemblage. In other words, it's not, let's put together a group of stories. It's short, short stories, flash fiction, longer things, some very strange stories, organized, as I think I said in my review, it's organized like a set at a concert. In other words, it really does have a rhythm to it uh, that makes it more than just an assemblage of stories. And I always like that in a collection. Fair enough. I mean, I, I actually have several of those on my, my five. I mean, I, I'll be honest, I could have put together a list of eight or nine or so. Some of the ones which are on your list are on my sort of halo list of, if you like, beyond, just just outside my five. You know, so like just outside my five would be The Emerald Circus by Jane Yolen, The Overneath by Peter Beagle, a couple other ones. But the ones that are on my five even though I realize there's a little bit of genre impurity going on here. First of all, You Should Come With Me Now by M. John Harrison from Comma Press, which you were just talking about. Dear Sweet Filthy World by Caitlin R. Kiernan from Subterranean, which is the latest collection of about 15 stories or so, I think, that have originally appeared in Serenia Digest and elsewhere, and is a wonderful book. Wicked Wonders by Ellen Clages, which is also on your list, and I would agree with you strongly that it contains some of her very best work. Uh, along with some stuff, you know, some there's some a bit of extra stuff that I might not have added to it, but the stuff that's there that's great is so strong that it's well and truly deserving of nomination. I would also nominate her Body and Other Parties by Carmen, Carmen Maria Machado, which is outstanding, and Tim Powers's Down and That in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers, which is great. Yeah, the the uh, the, the Machado thing. As was, was my extended list had the Caitlin Kiernan thing and the Machado thing and the Naomi Critcher collection, um, but and but all of which I, I I liked a lot and somewhere off to the side because I think it's going to get nominated anyway was Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, which is a lot of fun and an interesting problem because these are not Neil Gaiman stories these are Neil this is Neil Gaiman prose uh, recounting of actual stories and it's a huge bestseller and probably will be on the list. Um, so yeah, I think this was a, a very good year for collections. Uh, the Machado uh, probably sh- should be on the list. Uh, there was, I, it, it was like the first one bumped off. That and Caitlin Kernan the first one bumped off. And I know this is not again professional, but it's getting every damned award there is. It's 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 a but and, and Carmen was stunned by it as as we could tell when we talked to her uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's absolutely deserving of all the recognition it gets. I guess my question and in, in where I place it on the ballot is this is an amazingly accomplished work of fiction to the extent that it's specifically a work of fantasy. It makes use of fantasy. But, again, only some of the stories in it are fantasy, and a couple of them are actually science fiction. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, look, I appreciate that. I mean, there's a couple others that were sort of on my... Halo list, if you like, as well. 
I certainly, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm equally torn as you are about the, the Neil Gaiman book, Norse Mythology, but probably on my Halo list is uh, Tanith, Tanith by Choice, which is a Best of Tanith Lee collection that came out from Newcon, and the, the Unorthodox Dr. Draper by William Browning Spencer, which is his latest collection, and Winter Children and Other Chilling Tales from Angela Slatter, which are, you know, is on my Halo list as well. She's written some very strong work in the last year or two or three. So yeah, but I mean, you, you say it's a strong year for collections. It's I think we've got to the stage where there is such a an enormous volume of fiction, short fiction published, and so many collections being published at all levels from you know major presses on down, that it's always a good year for collections. Gary, I, I can't remember the last time I had a hard a hard time finding five worthy nominees to get onto the list. It's really generally arguing over what got left off. I'm guessing if we went back more than five or ten years, we would find fewer collections. I mean, there was a period of – I couldn't demonstrate this with statistics unless I did some research. It seems to me that there was a period of time when the major presses, the, the double A's and the random houses, had basically given up on collections. And before, the small presses had really filled in that gap. Uh, it, it seems to me that the sort of thing that Small Beer is doing and Tachyon is doing and uh, – P.S., uh, Aqueduct, uh, Subterranean, that uh, they've been doing that very effectively for about a decade, but it seems to me there was a period before there where collections, even from major writers, uh, were not getting placed. Um, well, look, know, I mean, look, even, don't, don't you think that maybe Joe Hill's strange weather is a chance to make the ballot? Change, uh, absolutely. Uh, and I've not read it, but uh, a few years ago, a good example is uh, 20th Century Ghosts, uh, which did win the Crawford Award and I think may have made the ballot, uh, was, was one of those books that was a little bit lost. He was not a best-selling writer when that book came out. Uh, and now he is, of course, a very high-profile book, and it'll uh, very likely to make uh, the ballot through the popular vote. Okay. Well, let us move up now to Best Anthology or Anthology, because Best isn't in the title of any of these, but Anthology of the Year or whatever you want to call it. Uh, excellent anthology. I've said before, one of the things I like about the Stoker Awards is that the title of the award is Superior Achievement in. Uh, and and we try to do that with the Crawford Award. We're saying this is really a good book. Uh, it may not be the best book of the year because we haven't actually read them uh, all, but it's, it's a really, really good book. And of the ones I've seen, the first thing that comes to mind is the Book of Swords. Uh, I've read a number. I've not read the whole thing. Everything I've read from it has been excellent, uh, and it strikes me as being uh, it's, it's just a really fun, strong anthology in all sorts of ways. Um, so, largely, what I'm looking at here is uh, a list of anthologies that I either have looked at part of that I've. Um, heard about that I've read stories excepted from, excerpted from. And based on the excerpts I've seen, even though I don't have a copy of the book, it looks to me like The Gin Falls in Love must be a really interesting collection because everything I've read from it has been very good. It, it, it's more than that. I mean, it's been a very interesting year for anthologies. It's been a much, much, much stronger year for science fiction anthologies than fantasy anthologies, particularly if you split between fantasy and dark fantasy slash horror um, there have been a couple, one or two quite strong horror anthologies. The two anthologies that you named, The Book of Swords and The Gin Falls in Love and Other Stories, are, for my money, head, I mean, head and shoulders and enormous distance 
the two best fantasy anthologies of the year, and I will be nothing short of staggered if they don't make the final ballot. They both feature a rich array of stories from a broad spectrum of writers. The Book of Swords features some of my very favourite stories of the year. Gardner is a wonderful fantasy editor, actually. Edited one of the best fantasy reprint anthologies that I've ever read, uh, Modern Classics of Fantasy. And that strength can be found in this book. Uh, it features really strong stories by Scott Lynch and Ken Liu and all kinds of other people, uh, Kate, uh, Kate Elliott. Uh, so it's well worth looking at. The Gin Falls in Love, uh, which is also one of the reasons why you would consider uh, nominating Jonathan Oliver further down the ballot. He's the, the editor who acquired this, collect- this anthology for, for Solaris. is a really, really strong book. Mavesh and Jared did a wonderful job with it. So if it's not on the ballot, I will eat my hat. I've read maybe four stories from it. This, again, this is a piece of advice to people who feel incompetent to make it. If you've read four or five stories from an anthology and they're uniformly excellent, then that's a pretty good indication that the anthology itself is worth considering. It's a, it's a solid rule of thumb, and I've read all of them. So, I mean, I mean not most of the most anthologies that were published, and certainly all of each of the anthologies we're talking about. Um, probably the, my next favorite was Black Feathers by Ellen Datlow. Ellen is always a very, very skilled and reliable anthologist. Uh, she had three books out last year that I can think of off the top of my head. Haunted Houses with Lisa Morton, uh, Black Feathers with Ellen, uh, which is a solo, and also Mad Hatters and March Hares. Uh, I don't much care for Lewis Carroll short fiction, but it's certainly a worthy nominee. Black Feathers has some great stuff by some wonderful writers. Osman Malik has a wonderful story in there. I think Priya Sharma has a very strong story in there. A very worthy nominee. And then I don't normally go for reprint anthologies in this because of my prejudices, but uh, Peter Beagle and Jacob Weissman co-edited The New Voices of Fantasy for, uh, for Tachyon, and that's a very strong book. So those five will fill out my ballot, and I will be, as I say, shocked if the Dazois and the Morad Shirin books aren't on there at least. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm virtually certain Dazois will be. So that brings us to short fiction, which is now we're getting into the categories where I am still trying to shave down the numbers. I'm there. I'm done. I'm done. Done with those ones. (laughs) You've been reading short fiction. You've been reading 2017 short fiction since late 2016. What do you mean late? Mid, mid 2016. The only thing is I haven't read any of it since, you know, for for, for a while, but yeah. You've been reading, you've been reading this fiction for two years. I basically, except for pieces here and there that friends called attention to, I have depended on, uh, Reprints on Year of Year's Best Anthology. I don't have Gardeners or Riches yet. So I'm, I'm looking at most of these things, only a handful of which I actually read at the time. Um, and and some of them came from original anthologies. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I had on my list was uh, the, the Resident, which was Carmen Machado's original story in her collection, uh, which I thought was wonderful. So I, I put that on the ballot. Um, and then I just started going nuts. I mean, there was... I loved um, uh, Dora Goss's story, the uh, the, the one about the uh, "Come See the Living Dryad," which uh, again is one of those fantasy stories that maybe really isn't a fantasy story, but has such a powerful affect. Um, and then uh, one which I don't think I'll be surprised if it makes it on the ballot, but I find unforgettable was the short. The story that uh, 
John Crowley had in his little PM collection called This Is Our Town, which is a very strange story. It was um, widely loved by some people. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a story that some people think is not even a fantasy story, so I don't expect to see it there. And then I had uh, things that are... Um, what's the, I can't even read my handwriting here. Um, I liked Kaya Shanti Wilson's Lamentation of the Women, uh, which is the only thing, and partly because I view that very much as a horror story, even though it has... Yeah, it is horror. And it's it's very powerful for what it does. So there were a couple of things in, in that area. I, I Again, I'm picking up some things. I, there was a e, e. Lily Youth story I thought was very good, which I actually did read online. Uh, Maureen McHugh's story, Sidewalks, which may be science fiction. That was in your year's best anthology. From Omni. And um, the other one, which I just picked up in your anthology, is an author I know nothing else about. Was Benedict uh, uh, ben, my English name by R.S. RS Benedict from, from FNSF? Yeah, FNSF, and it just was—it struck me as a very original voice. It is um, it's a science fiction story, but it's a very original voice. Story, but it's a science fiction story, readable as fantasy, if you know what I mean. It, it has a fantasy feel to it. There's no doubt, even though I mean, like it's in Gardner's best science fiction of the year, and it's in my book as a science fiction story. It's a Hal Clement story. I mean, it's basically. Uh, a, a very old John Robert Silverberg's Passengers. It's a very old science fiction idea, but if you treat it in a certain way, it feels like fantasy. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, that's one of the ones. So, what did you have on your list? My five stories. Four of them appeared online, so you can read them online. Uh, one in an anthology, though I probably could have picked more. And I have to say, this was a painful process because this is smushing together short fiction and uh, um, short story and novelette. And one of the reasons I love having two categories is because then I can nominate more. But in alphabetical author by in alphabetical by, uh, sorry in order alphabetical order by author name, my top five stories were probably still the chosen one by Kelly Barnhill. Kelly won the World Fantasy Award a while ago for the Unlicensed Magician, a novella, which is in her new short story collection that came out well, about a month ago. And this is it's just a charming, delightful, wonderful story. Sort of about a princess who goes on a quest. And what happens? It's a great story. I love it. Uh, I agree with you about Dora Goss's Come See the Living Triad, which may or may not be fantasy, uh, and which honestly was a, a, a real coin toss with it and one other story. But uh, this one I really, really liked. Uh, Kathleen Kayembe had a story called The Fairy Tree in Lightspeed. Uh, the Barnhill story also was in Lightspeed and the Goths in Tor.com. But the fairy tree from, from Lightspeed uh, is a wonderful dark fairy tale story. Loved it. Scott Lynch, who publishes too little and I think trusts his, the quality of his work too little, but manages to be one of m maybe three or four writers I can think of who manages to capture the essence of epic fantasy at short, short length, uh, had a novelette called The Smoke of Gold is Glory in the Book of Swords which is in my year's best and which I loved and is a dragon and swords kind of adventure story. Um, I think the only person who comes as close to capturing, you know, epic fantasy at short length is probably Joe, Joe Abercrombie. And then uh, Caroline uh, Joachim had a story called Carnival Nine on Beneath Ceaseless Skies, which is a clock, clockwork punk story and That's is great. great. Really liked that yeah. story a lot. I, I, I liked it a lot because it was a 
conceptually, and it's just a story about wind-up toys, basically. Uh, it was just off the edge of my list, uh, so it's one of the ones I liked as well. Okay, then, let me go to novella, or do you have something else to say about short fiction? No, I have no more to say about short fiction. Novella, I had the same problem. Uh, there were some things I just couldn't figure out. This is one of those areas. Okay, I'll start with one where I may knock it off my ballot because it's a science fiction story. Uh, even though it was one of the strongest novellas of the year, was Christopher Rowe's Border State. Uh, it's clearly part of a science fictional world he has created. It's clearly uh, of a, a, a piece with a voluntary state. Uh, I think it's actually better than the voluntary state. But it really is science fiction, even though it has strong elements of surrealism and a lot of fantasy affect in it. Um, the Border State is one of my favorite novellas of the year, but I, whilst I would give it a Nebula and a Hugo, I don't think it's fantasy, and I wouldn't put it on this ballot. But for strictly that reason, it's a great story. Yeah, mine is probably not going to, to get there. Um, the one which I'm pretty sure we both have, well, there's a, a more than one I'm pretty sure we both have, but the one I think I know we both have on our um, list is Ellen Clage's Passing Strange, which is a conflict of interest for you, but who cares? Uh, congratulations on having acquired that for Tor.com. It's one of the best things they published during the year. It is in Ellen's own estimation and mine as well, the best adult piece of fiction she's written. I think that's fair. And I mean, I must say, when it comes to nominations, I'm going to be unapologetic about the double standards. I'm happy to nominate and recommend for nomination writers whose work I have you know, been lucky enough to help publish. And I agree with pa about Passing Strange completely. So yeah. Anyway, continue. Okay. Uh, another one I had on the list, uh, also from Tor.com, was uh, Jeffrey Ford's The Twilight Pariah, uh, which is fits into the kind of horror-slash-fantasy tradition of the World Fantasy Awards, but is, uh, again, as, as, as we talked to Jeffrey uh, about at the time, a very character-based version of a very familiar scenario. It's just beautifully written. Uh, you end up, it's a, it's a haunted house story, but you end up really concerned about what happened to these characters in their lives, rather than the, the supernatural stuff, and that's clearly what he was out to do, and so it's just a beautifully shaped, character-driven novella that is characteristic of Jeff Ford's work. Um, some other things uh, some other things I had on my list, and then we can go to your list, and I'll just listen because we are running out of time. I did have uh, Peter Straub's The Process is a Process of Its Own. Love that story. I had K.G. Parker. Mightier Than the Sword, which is just... It's not a good title. Parker doesn't come up with the best titles in the world. But it's a <laughs> great writer, though. Great, no, great writer of novellas, yeah. And, uh, and Caitlin Kiernan's Agent of uh, Greenland. Uh, and that pretty much rounded out my list, which is more than five. I know I'm going to have okay. to probably eliminate the board. Well, uh, I can tell you that we, we overlap a lot. Uh, I would second your nomination for the Jeffrey Ford story, The Twilight Pariah, which is marvelous. Jeff has won a cavalcade of World Fantasy Awards, but he wins them for a reason. Uh, I also would repeat your nomination of Agents of Dreamland by Caitlin Kiernan, which I acquired as well, and so I have that same thing, but it is genuinely one of the best things she's ever written. It is a smart, dark, noirish, science fiction-y, fantasy, weird 
novella, um, wonderfully written. She's just such a, a, an incredible talent, and I love that story a lot. So I think it's one of my favorite things I've acquired in the last couple of years. Um, Ellen Clage's Passing Strange, which is a, I guess for the purposes of this classification, a romantic, a historical romantic fantasy about San Francisco and the gay community there with supernatural elements and whatever else, is ju- just captures everything I love about Ellen's writing. What? Sorry? Right. Uh, but one of the things I love also is because she and I, when she was working on this, we're talking about uh, Margaret Brundage, the cover artist for Weird Tales back in the 20s, who became the sort of template for one of the characters. The amount of research that Ellen does in these things is just phenomenal, and it shows. It comes out on the page. It's uh, if, if you want to check out what was happening, you know, was, uh, was Frida Kahlo uh, actually at a World's Fair and all that stuff checks out, and it just is. There's a sense of reading really solid historical fiction with this fantasy element in it, which in this case I think is seamless. And the, the gay romance element, I guess. I noticed that Tor.com publishes these things. I noticed one of the not, not novella I just finished reading today, which I think was yours as well, was the Fallon's Time Was. They're public. It's, it's a gay romance. Okay, it is a gay romance, but it's a terrific time travel story, too. I tend to think so. I think it's amongst uh, Ian's very best work. And yes, I did acquire and edit that one as well. Yes. Um, the other novella on my list is, uh, uh, well, you mentioned the KJ Parker, uh, which I share uh, an affection for, Mighty Than the Sword. And then also uh, a novella acquired for Tor.com by Ellen Datlow, Mapping the Interior by Stephen Gray Jones, which, Graham Jones, which is really strong and powerful. So for me, the, Fa- the Ford, the Jones, the Caitlin Kiernan, the Clagis, the Parker were my five. And I think they're a great choice. And yes, I realized that I edited and acquired two of them. But on the other hand, I guess my, my defense here is I did. I, I edited and acquired, acquired and edited them because I loved them. I think Agents is great. Passing Strange is great. And I love the, the others as well. Yeah, editor. I mean, if you liked it then, why should you not like it now? Well, there's always, I, I, I guess it's, it, it is different from saying, hey, nominate me, I suppose. Nominate them. You know, uh, they're great, you know. Okay. The, what George Martin would call the big one, novel. Well, not I'm going to go first here. The life achievement. Sorry? No, okay. that goes last. Okay. That, 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 that's the huge one, or the old okay. one. Maybe it's okay. the big old one. So um, the big one. There were a lot of I have a lot of things that I think are worthy of a World Fantasy Award. And as you might not be surprised, uh, my number one nominee by some margin is John Crowley's Ka, the Car Oakley and the Ruins of Emer, which I think is, uh, a, is is destined to be a classic fantasy novel. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's contains a lot of the Americana that uh, shows up in things like Little Big. It has an immortal crow kind of as a narrator, but it has an unreliable narrator who's relating this from the crow. Uh, and it covers several thousand years of human history uh, with considerable fantastic elements and ends up in a way that even permits it to be read as science fiction. Uh, ends up in the near future with a clearly diseased narrator thinking that he's being told this elaborate story by a crow. Uh, so if you're, if you're a hyper-rationalist, you can say, hey, this is about a delusional guy who's suffering from a disease in a badly polluted future who thinks he's talking to a crow. Okay, that's fine. But the story is a great story. It'd be on my story. ballot, yeah. Wouldn't be at the top of my ballot, but it'll be on my ballot. 
Okay, here's another problem I had, because I didn't realize this was until I looked at the categories that Locus assigned them to. I didn't realize that Kitch Johnson's The Riverbank is classified as a novel. Well, of course it is. It's more than 60,000 words long. I thought it was a novella. No, no. It felt like a... No, no. It's 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 a novel. It's the best sequel ever written to to win the novellas. But... uh, so that may okay. Let me, let me give you a whole list of things. I'm way over on this. I'm just way over on this. I'm eliminating some things because of science fiction. Uh, one of the novels I admired this year, as you know, for Solomon and Unkindness of Goes. I think okay, it's a Generation Starship story. I'll, Nothing to do with that's this. That's right. Bell, it doesn't need I'm going to cut that part out. Uh, Dora Goss's Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter was just a lot of fun. There were two that are in the same category of revisionist literary Victoriana was uh, Dora Goss's novel and uh, Molly Tanzer's novel Creatures of Will and Temper uh, I think I don't think they'll both end up on the ballot uh, but I enjoyed them a lot uh, one of the novels that came up for a serious discussion and came very close to the uh, to winning the uh, the Crawford Award was uh, Ruthanna Emerson's Winter Tide uh, which is also novel length, and is one of the more originals, original takes on uh, Lovecraftiana that we've seen. Another one I'll probably eliminate because I'm, I think I can view it as science fiction, although I think it's worthy of an award uh, of some sort, is, is Karen Tidbeck's Amatka, which is set in a world governed by language, and depending on how you read the assumptions behind the novel, could be a science fiction novel. There are dystopian element, elements in it, there are clear science fiction elements in it, but it feels like a fantasy. Um, the ones I have, besides uh, the ones I've mentioned, um, I would, in, a, in another year, probably put Elliot de Bernard's House of Binding Thorns, which I loved. It's the middle volume of a trilogy, which is always kind of problematic, but it, it raised the stakes of the trilogy considerably. So these are still the ones you're um, nominating. No, these are the ones. These are the ones. I'm, this is a list I'm going to try to have to choose five from this list. I love Paul Lafarge's The Night Ocean. It's probably not really got any fantasy in it at all, but it may be the best novel ever written about a version of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, there was Victor Laval's Changeling, which is flat out fantasy. It's, it starts out as a realistic. New York novel and becomes more and more uh, unashamedly genre as it goes along. Uh, and there was, I think, the last thing I have in my list, um, which unfortunately is might be there because there are no uh, young adult categories for um, for world fantasy would be Nedekor for Zakata Witch, which I thought actually of Kakata Warrior which actually I thought was better than Akata Witch. But again, you're in the middle of a series there, so that uh, may or may not make my final list. We overlap somewhat. I mean, I believe Car by John Crowley belongs on the final ballot. It's a really strong book. I have nominated Dora Goss's Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, which I really liked and I think is a worthy nominee, though probably there were two or three others that were around the same kind of space. Uh, I would also nominate The Riverbank by Cage Johnson, which is a wonderful uh, novel length, 
sequel to uh, Wind in the Willows, but from a whole different perspective uh, and is entirely in keeping with a lot of other wonderful work that Kidge has done over the last few years. The two books that I'd add to the list of mentions and which are towards the top of my list, Philip Pullman's La Belle Sauvage, which I mentioned earlier, which is an extraordinary work and really does take the whole world of of uh, his dark materials to a somewhat different place and does it really, really well. He's a wonderful writer, and this is the, the kind of follow-on to a series that could have fallen flat in its face but doesn't. And then, frankly, one of the best fantasy writers alive today, one of the best young adult writers alive today, is Frances Harding. And she had a new novel out, A Skin Full of Shadows, which is a marvellous book. And it would be a tragedy, uh, in my, to my way of thinking, if it were not on the World Fantasy Award balance this year. So that's my five. The Crowley, the Goss, the Harding, the Johnson, and the Pullman. I have no problem with the Pullman or the Harding. Harding, I mean, everything I've read by Francis Harding I've loved, and I haven't read that, and I haven't read the Pullman yet either. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, so probably I, just I, quickly, I, yeah. in my sort of list, I mean, I would also say Elizabeth Bear had an excellent book out called The Stone in the Skull, which I would say is in that space. Daryl Gregory had a very, very strong novel, Spoonbenders, which would be a, a worthy nominee as well. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot of other books, lots and lots and lots. Um, I went back and forth over um, Walter John Williams' Quill- Quillifer, which was a lot of fun and that I really, really liked. Sarah Reese Brennan had a really good book in Other Lands, which I later found out was based on or spun off some online fiction that she'd been involved with and is, is well worth uh, seeking out. I'm, I'm really happy to see it popping up over here. I would agree and endorse with your view on Akata Warrior, which were to make the final ballad I would be quite happy about. So lots of good stuff. And now, as we get to the end of our hour, the big old one, life achievement. This, this you is one where completely mm. spoil on this. I know, I know you're, I know you're campaigning for one author, and as soon as you put me in his mind, my problem with life achievement is this. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, I was uh, talking to a friend of ours who was a judge judging the awards, and I was recommending to her people who should receive the award. And she informed me that they were talking about giving it to Jane Yolen. And my response to her at the time was, Jane doesn't have one? What's the right, what's wrong with this award? Uh, so, so my sense is, I, tr- I went through the list, I actually did this before a podcast, of this long list of people who won Life Achievement Awards, trying to think who isn't on it. And I'm sure there are names that come to mind. But the one that has now been at the top of my brain for the last two or three years is the candidate that you are promoting, who is... Howard Waldrop. One of the great fantasy short story writers of... The last 30 years. Last 30 or 40 or 50 years, probably. Um, He started in the 70s. um, I was was saying short fiction writers because... uh, a dozen tough jobs. The one novel I think it was his I've read is very much enjoyable, but it doesn't have that concentrated power that short fiction does. And I, I, I mostly are, agree. I mean, he's the author or co-author of three published novels. There's the Texas-Israeli War with uh, Jake Saunders, 1999. There is Them Bones, which was part of Terry Carr's original Ace Science Fiction Special or New, new Ace Science Fiction Specials, along with Neuromancer and whatever else. Um, 
And then he's also the author of A Dozen Tough Jobs, which is really still at novella length. He's wrote, he wrote, has written not a number of very strong novellas. He's written all up about 80, 85 short stories or pieces of short fiction, uh, about six major collections. And I mean, I, I'm an enormous fan of his work. I love his work. And I'm haunted by the fact that Lucia Shepard passed away before he could, um, you know, be, be, you know, become a recipient of this award, which he plainly deserved, frankly. Uh, and so I would hope that that Howard would be at the forefront of everybody's thoughts. That said, there are lots of others. And given that the one criteria is that you have a some kind of, I suppose, there's got to be a body of work, an achievement to be recognized, and you've got to be alive, and you've got to be 62 years or older. So I'd toss into the hat that Jeff Ryman is eligible for this award. I'd p- toss into the hat that Ellen Clagius is eligible for this award. I'd toss into people- that. You're, you're revealing to our audience that a lot of people are over 62 years old. Uh, Who don't have World Fantasy Life Achievement Awards. But yeah, Howard is my number one pick. No, well, I'm going to be thinking about I, some I more about that one. I can't disagree with that, Howard. I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, I think is important about the award is recognizing people who are who are, are testing the boundaries of genre. That sounds like a cliche, and it is a cliche. But I believe, uh, for example, Ari Lafferty, who you and I have both been working with recently, I think he did get one before he died. He, uh, uh, well, he certainly, yeah, he did get one, yes. Okay. And that was uh, very far-sighted, I think, of whenever it was. It was a long time ago, obviously. Because here was somebody who wrote very quirky, very idiosyncratic, very powerful, and very individual short stories. And, and, and some novels uh, that were well-received as well. But I think most people today remember the short fiction. Uh, Waldrop is like that in the sense that um, he doesn't have a single work, a single book. Probably the most familiar book is Flying Saucer Rock. Uh, story is Flying Saucer Rock. Oh, oh no, uh, Ugly Chickens, my friend. Ugly Chickens is the okay, most famous one. Okay, the two of them, the Ugly Chickens and the Flying Saucer Rock. Those are the ones that have been anthologized hundreds and hundreds of times. The problem is, and this is where the judges become important, the problem is that um, except for three or four short stories, most readers don't know who Howard Waldrop is. His collections for the last several years have been from small presses. Uh, He's had a presence at conventions. The last time I saw him, I think, was probably at San Antonio. Um, Not in World Fantasy, but Worldcon. And... uh, He's one of those people when he shows up at a convention, every other writer at the convention wants to hang out at the bar with him. And the younger fans are saying, who's the old guy that George Martin is talking to or that Gardner Dozois is talking to or that so-and-so is talking to? And then you explain, this is a really, really important writer and you should pay attention to him. Um, But I need to move on from this for a particular reason, and it's important. That is our World Fantasy Ballot. And our World Fantasy discussion for now, I'm going to ask you to send me your list so I can add it to mine online. We'll put it up so people can read it, because people love to see physical lists for some reason, so we'll do that. But I don't know if you heard me gasp about four or five minutes ago. I am very sad to see the news that word has come down that uh, Kate Wilhelm has passed away. While we were talking. Well, the the word came out while we were talking. I'm not sure. Uh, Oh, that's terrible. I am deeply saddened. I never met Kate, but uh, she wrote some wonderful, wonderful fiction over the years. Some of my very favorite short fiction of all time. 
probably contributed more to the science fiction field, I think, than the fantasy field. Um, but uh, where late the, be- the sweet bird sang stands as a classic of the field. The, the, the best cloning novel, it's interesting how old it is, because for late the sweet bird sang, which would have been, actually, interestingly enough, were I to get around to doing the 1970s volume of the Library of America, that's one of the novels that would definitely be in it. It's still the best cloning novel, despite Ishiguro and other people doing the same thing. She was also a, a very important force in Clarion and uh, in, in working with younger writers. She wrote a nonfiction book about the history of Clarion. Um, she was also a very good mystery writer. I actually wrote a couple of her mysteries. Mm-hmm. I wrote a bunch and of I, I did meet her once. I met her... There was a birthday party for Vonda McIntyre at Worldcon or World of Fantasy a couple of years ago, and I remember meeting her at that, I believe, um, very briefly. And uh, it was one of those things, it, it's, it's nothing is like meeting Le Guin, but there is this sense of meeting somebody that you absolutely have no idea where to start saying what you want to say. And she, Because I had never met Damon Knight at all. No. Well, I guess it's, it's worth contextualizing. And here is someone whose career stretched back more than 60 years. She was first published in the 1950s. Uh, she was instrumental, I think, in the Milford writing workshops as well as Clarion. She was an important editor in her own right. She, uh, she was an important nonfiction writer in her own right, a critically important science fiction and fantasy writer, but particularly science fiction writer in her, her own wor- uh, right. Uh, I mean... She was also, it so happened, the wife and partner of uh, Damon Knight, and she worked with him in all sorts of capacities, but her achievement very much, I think it can be fair to say, stands alone. Um, yeah, I, although the Milford things were legendary. I mean, every writer that I can remember had been there, uh, and, you know, and, and Damon and and Kate were the, were, were the parent figures. So, so that... That influence on younger writers was phenomenal, but she, you're right. She continued writing throughout her career uh, in, in multiple genres, and it's really stunning to hear this coming only weeks after hearing about Ursula Le Guin. Mm. Two of the great ladies of our field, and uh, uh, there is no doubt that that Kate will be sorely missed, sorely, sorely missed. And I have to say, I suppose it's fair, because she did write a, a good chunk of fantasy short fiction, that she is still eligible, although it's you know for a Life Achievement Award for this year. That's true, because if you were alive during the calendar year... That's right. I'm not saying that. I'm just pointing that out. But uh, so undeniably, her significant, significant achievement, and, and that sets aside the fact that she was beloved to many in the field. I mean, people, a lot of people knew her personally, had worked with her at w- workshops, had been involved with her in one way or the other, and she and her husband were famous for their uh, hosp- hospitality, their um, their involvement in the field, their encouragement of new writers. So, a, a very very sad piece of news. I mean, I don't. I, I'd have to look it up. But I think she must have been ninety something when she passed away. She um, must have been. The, the, the Milford things were. This, this is we're talking about somebody uh, who is formative influence on on a generation of science fiction writers, two or three generations before our own. I mean, people like Theodore Sturgeon and Philip Jose Farmer would sh- and Harlan Ellison would show up at these Milford conferences, and 
and and learn from from mostly I gather from uh, from 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 Kate and and, and and Damon. So this is one of our last really important links to a generation of science fiction writers that predates even the generation of Ursula Le Guin and John Russ and the other people we think of as great feminist writers of science. Yes, apparently according to information from her family that I'm seeing on social media, she passed away March 8 after brief, brief illness. So she's, you know, sort of, and was 89, would have been 90 in June, and will be sorely, sorely missed. Um, so yes, a, a, a sad note to, to end the podcast on, but uh, someone who's well worth both acknowledging and hopefully, you know, sort of encourage people who listen to the podcast who are less familiar with her work to to seek her out. There's a short story for us called The Winter Beach, which I always adored and would strongly recommend anyone seek out. And certainly look for When Late the Sweetbird Sang, which is mm, very um, much one of the classic, one of those, definitely one of the classic novels of the early 70s, and I don't really think anybody has surpassed it in examining the implications of cloning, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there's post-apocalyptic element to it also. But. but then, I mean, I also loved Welcome Chaos, which was part of a, a resurgency she had in the, in, in, the, in the early 1980s before she became more active as a mystery writer. She sort of switched over and wrote a lot of the Barbara Holloway mysteries and the Constance and Charlie mysteries, which were a lot of fun. So, yeah. But on that, we should probably wind up. We're well over our... Well, we're over our hour. Um, and I'm not going to sort of cut all the bits out that, that were... You know, that need cutting. So we'll probably stay there, so... Now, you're off to ICFA next week. Am I going to talk to you oh, then, or, or what, what's going to happen? Um, I'm, I, I don't have a lot to do there, so maybe we can figure out some people to talk to. Jeff Ryman is coming back this year. There's some people I had hoped to see who are apparently not going to be there. I don't. I can't think Caitlin Kiernan has canceled on us. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, there will be a, a, a lot of interesting people there, and I will be in contact with you to see if we can organize something on a it would have to be on a, fr- on a Friday night here, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it, 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 it'll be fun to see our friends, hang around the pool bar and so forth and so on. Uh, we are giving Crawford Award to Carmen Maria Machado, who will be there for that. And apart from that, it's one of these conventions which oh, – it's just funny. I was talking to, uh, to Robin, to Brian Aldis' agent today, and she was saying, there are thousands of people there, aren't there? And I said – there are always between three and four hundred people. It's not a large convention. It never mm. goes slightly over four hundred. So it's a. I'm going to be having a lot of fun this coming weekend, and I hope we can find some time to record something. Well, we shall see. I look forward to, the, to it uh, as a possibility. But until then, I suppose I shall talk to you next week or soon after. Next week or soon after. Until then, that makes another Cood Street podcast, doesn't it? I guess that's another one. Yeah, it's another one.